This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the show that takes a look at current movies in theaters most of the time and uh, looks at some movies from days gone by that kind of sync up with some of the themes and our current uh, blockbusters and indie hits and and recommend some films that might tie you into this greater cinematic universe. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook and I'm an arts writer with Local Express here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am also an arts writer but uh, I'm a film nerd and uh, I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're looking into the future. We're looking into the crystal ball, uh, as it were, and uh, looking at films that portray a dystopic society based on having recently seen Ghost in the Shell. So, Stephen, here we are again talking about a science fiction subgenre. And I feel like it's important to say that in our 30-something podcasts we have done, I want to list out the the sub science sci-fi subgenres we've done just to just to you know keep it all above board and and to recommend that those of of the folks that are listening that are into science fiction we it's clearly a favorite subject of ours because we have done uh, we've done podcasts on tech will destroy us yes. alien invasions lost in space post-apocalyptic movies and time travel movies. So this is the sixth time we've, we've <laughs> talked about a sub, subgenre. And I mean, I think it's great. There's a lot of great movies in all these subjects. And uh, but but yeah, I think it's kind of funny that, that we keep coming back to science fiction. Yes, we try to go for more heartfelt drama, but tech keeps pulling us back in. That's right. That's right. And, you know, uh, there are a lot of dystopias. Uh, sci-fi is, is, I guess, more fun when it's badder, uh, when, you know, <laughs> when life is worse. Uh, you know, going way back to Metropolis, uh, some of my favorite dystopia movies include Brazil, Terry Gilliam's wonderful 1985 take on 1984, uh, Gattaca, uh, and of course, Blade Runner, and, and forthcoming Blade Runner 2049, which I'm pretty damn excited about. Yeah, and we'll probably find some other way to return to the scene when that film <laughs> comes out. Um, yeah, certainly uh, the, the the notion that uh, the the future, to quote the recently uh, Juno Award-winning and late musician uh, Leonard Cohen, I've seen the future and it's murder. Um, <laughs> generally, uh, we tend to take the view that the future is not going to be all things bright and beautiful, that it is in fact going to be kind of a miserable and oppressive existence. And that goes back to Metropolis. Of course, Metropolis ends on a hopeful note that uh, industry and labor will shake hands and move on to a brighter future, which uh, I'm fairly cynical about at this point in time, having been on strike for over a year. Um, but uh, you never know. You never know. And uh, but but even, you know, things like Logan's Run and so on, uh, you know, the, which was imprinted on me at an early age. I think I was 10 when I saw that. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I I've had this kind of cynical grim vision of, of of things to come, as it were, in the words of H.G. Wells, um, imprinted on my brain for a long time. And of course, Things to Come is a film uh, that came out in the, uh, I guess, in the in the 40s, or, you know, around the time of, you know, the the rise of militarism in, in Europe and, and uh, between the First and Second World Wars. Um, and it didn't see a very bright future ahead either. Uh, uh, and it's very preachy about it. Um, you know, it's worth tracking down. It's an interesting film, but... Uh, but be prepared for a lot of speeches in between some pretty cool uh, production design by William Cameron Menzies. But but yeah, going back to Metropolis, uh, 
you know, it, it shows the, the masses of mostly an impressed horde living underground. <laughs> These kind of drones who just run the machinery that keeps the city moving for the upper class uh, and wealthy elite. Um you know, which is uh, so not much has changed, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> and, and if we are living in the future, we're certainly seeing some of these films to be prophetic. But, you know, I don't know that they're necessarily all cautionary tales. I sort of feel like in some ways there's something seductive about that sort of cynical look at oh, the future. Oh, for sure. And there's something even beautiful about it. I mean, if, if we if we talk about this film that that we're seeing now, what we just saw this week, Ghost in the Shell, from, from this year, it, it is a remake, a live action, if you can call it that, given how much CGI is slathered on this thing, um, of the uh, Masamune Shiro uh, anime and manga, the the Japanese comic book and animated film going back to the 90s. Um, it's it's actually the city that it, it depicts is 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 quite uh, beguiling in some ways. Like I, I really I don't know that I want to live there, but I, I sure would like to visit. And I guess that's what we're doing. Yeah, it's well, it's it's kind of a Tokyo, Shanghai, Hong Kong sort of mashup. I think at one point we visited a graveyard, I think is a famous one in, I think, Hong Kong, but it's never having visited any of these cities, only in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was a bit of a you know mind warp that way. And of course, most of it, I, I guess, is being brought to us via green screen anyway. So it's, yeah. it's interesting they've created this amalgam. They don't actually, I don't think they ever say where it's taking place. Or, no, it doesn't even have a, the city I don't believe has a name. Maybe, maybe in passing they say it, but but yeah, I've been to Hong Kong and Tokyo, and it does feel like a lot like those cities uh, in some ways. And uh, and it's, uh, but yeah, it's interesting, you know, the 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 changes that this Hollywoodized version of the film have made. Uh, you know, I think some some are positive, some are negative. Uh, I would I went back. I think you did too. Went back to watch the original just to ref- refresh my memory of the original. And uh, oh yeah, I did too. Uh, I, I'm more of a fan. I think of Appleseed, a manga comic that he did. I think it was also adapted into an anime. But um, it's very similar to that. There, this dystopic setting, a militarized police state. But the heroes are these sort of very highly weaponized uh, uh, law enforcers and uh, where the line between human and machine is getting increasingly blurry. Um, I really like the sort of cyberpunk stuff. I love the anim- the visual designs. And uh, I, uh, I really like... Um, I like the Ghost in the Shell quite a bit, but I did find in rewatching it how maybe something's lost in translation, but boy, the dialogue is... is is incredibly dull. Um, <laughs> it's so plotting, and and the exposition is. We're talking the anime here. The anime, yeah, yes. the original. Uh, I found it really hard to keep my interest as these, as the the characters. Another character actually speak like they're human beings. Um, but I really, but I still found ways to enjoy it. I, I like the vision of the future. I sort of like the themes there of of humanity and technology kind of coming together to evolve together. I, I felt there was something kind of hopeful about that. And I love the sort of electronic score, the sort of very hypnotic. Um, now, the, the, the new film um, does away with a lot of those high-minded uh, philosophical stuff and really turns the story into an origin story of the lead character, the major played by, here played by Scarlett Johansson. And I, I found that was its biggest flaw. Like, okay, it makes a little more sense now, but it's um, 
it's it's a story we've seen done many many times before. Every superhero origin yes. story it feels like this, where she is she she's struggling with her existential identity. She has no memories, and then she suddenly gets a revelation that what her origins thought they were they're not, and uh, and it, it changes her perspective on herself and her identity and her world, and uh, and of course then she has to shoot a lot of things. <laughs> I'm quite a fan of of, of the anime, and I, I went through a phase where, where Ghost in the Shell is coming out, and, and Akira was. Coming coming out and and um you know the the um things like you know my neighbor totoro uh the miyazaki films were, were finally arriving on this shore and it was like a golden age mm-hmm. of, uh, of of japanese animation and uh, you know the, there was a lot of variety i got into cowboy bebop in a big way because it had a, such a great sense of humor and a love of music um and there was a lot going on and a lot to love at that time and uh ghost in the shell was pretty impressive i thought it was it worked really well as as an action story mm-hmm. um you're right the the, the the i think the japanese original soundtrack is a lot more emphatic than the english language dub version of this film um and it is just rattling off you know what this robot does and, and things like that and um and and who this character is and their relation to that you know and it's it it does occasionally say more than it shows but but at the same time there's has some great sequences and then the look of it is is fantastic and it's also a fairly brisk like 82 minutes yeah yeah you know, that helps whereas i think the 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 new live action one is about 25 minutes longer mm-hmm. and um you know not not brisker but no it's not it, it does kind of sag in in the middle until we're waiting for the big um you know the big shoot out with the spider tank at the end and and then more you know more uh exposition and uh, retribution and all that kind of thing but um and it gets more into the kind of the corporate skullduggery than the film than the animated version does as well like the um you know, they, they invest a lot more in, in this corporation that's fighting yeah. with the police force. And yeah, it's a robot. They, they make artificial intelligence. They make robot bodies. And, and of course, this is the company that has created our hero's shell. Uh, she yeah. is a human brain in a, in a robot body and a body that is very capable of doing, uh, you know, very many impressive things like falling off buildings and not and flying through windows and shooting a lot of people without getting hurt. Yeah, it's it's you know that part. I mean, there's some things like you say there are some things that the live action version does better than the anime. Maybe because it's better, you know, better acting. Because <laughs> certainly visually, they managed to kind of achieve the same kind of peaks yeah, in this I kind would of agree. Yeah. green screen combo of live action and and you know it's hard to say where one ends and where begins and uh and so the the look they achieve is, is very seems very appropriate for the film they do borrow entire sequences uh whole hog from the uh from the animated version like the fight in the shallow water yeah um, yeah sure uh which makes you wonder why there's this large pool of shallow water in the middle of this bustling city but it's it's there and also um the spider tank yeah. is, is right out of the, the, the cartoon. You know, I suddenly had the, that flashback. After we'd had a lot of soul searching and trying to find her original identity, then we get back to, oh, yeah, right. This is about shooting stuff and blowing things up. Um, and not and not all of that soul searching, finding identity stuff is bad. It's just there's, I think, maybe a little too much of it in the middle third of the film. Like yeah. the, the, the actor who plays... Uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson's mom is very affecting. She's very good, and the, the, their scenes together, I quite enjoy. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Her, her. I want to say birth mom. I don't know. It's yeah. It's, I uh, think so. Yes. And, yes. And uh, and I think Juliette Binoche is, is sort of her adoptive maternal figure is also quite 
quite good as the sort of she's a scientist working at that uh, that factory. Yeah, who's a character is invented for the film. Yes, that, that's yes. a welcome addition as well. So there's there's things along the way that make it uh, make improvements, but then there's some narrative stuff that you know they really should have been shooting for something with the kind of snappy pace of the cartoon, I think. Yes, yeah, I agree. And I, I think there's an ambition there in the thematic parts of the cartoon uh, and the anime that isn't here, and they yes. played it a little safer. Uh, in some way, it's, it's things are a little more clarified and make a little more sense. But, but you know, I gather with the, the original, uh, there's a number of sequels. There's a TV yes. series. Yeah, they so go the, further. The franchise goes a lot further with a lot more to offer. Uh, you know, I think the thing I will say about this new version of Ghost in the Shell that I liked the most was just just the visual, in, the all-encompassing world that is created uh, in in character design, in set design, in the music. Uh, it's a beautiful looking film. I think in terms of just its, its visual impact, I would compare it favorably to The Matrix, to The Fifth Element, in terms of this creation of a science fiction vision of the future, uh, this city. I mean, it's, it, it is really, it's really something. And, uh, and that's what I would recommend if people have, a, have an affection for that kind of thing, see it in the cinema, because it's, it's a big screen experience, absolutely. Although Weirdly, the, the the animated version of the character, whose name, uh, oh man, I can't remember, Matt, not Matt Soko, something like that. <laughs> I can't remember the actual the major, uh, the ma- major, with, yes, I'm just the going major with, with major because that's the Ma- one part from both that they've saved. Yeah, the, the same name because they change her name for the new one. That's right. So, yeah. well, they, she's major in both, uh, but yeah, they, the actual name of her ghost is different, but. Uh, Major is is a bit less ro- weirdly. She's a bit less robotic in the cartoon. It seems like this. Right. They don't focus so much on trying to make her a complete android or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as important to the plot. You know. Whereas the the film, the live action version, actually, I do like the fact that they play up the whole uh, presence of cybernetic uh, enhancements that people are going for and from like the quality ones that this attack team that uh, she works with have to yes. the, the kind of the street level terrible uh, yeah. <laughs> you know like bargain bin enhancements you know you, you go and get your f- cell phone battery replaced and you get bionic eyes yes yeah you know, exactly. for a bargain price and and uh, I, I like that too I do like that aspect of it um you know, and, and and of course, certainly changes like changing the company from Megacorp, you know, and yes, the, to Hanka, to Hanka, and you know, to, to something that actually sounds like a real name to mm-hmm. and and uh, the um, you know, the main uh, so-called villain of the piece is, is the puppet master in the cartoon. It's like, right. oh, thank goodness they changed that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, that it, could have also just been a, a poor translation. I mean, who that's knows? true. That's true. Yeah. That's also what we're. We're probably yeah. Here you. we've got uh, mysterious cyber assailant played by Michael Pitt, who some for some reason is going by Michael Carmen Pitt these days. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean he he's I, I I like his sort of perspective. I like his sort of vengeance filled uh, arc, uh, and I like the I wish in fact that I like the supporting cast. This is actually quite a diverse supporting cast. Uh, Takeshi Kitano and the excellent um, Pilu Asbeck, who is a Danish actor who I follow whose career I followed a little bit since he was on Borgen the Danish. TV series. Um, oh, he's fantastic in this. Yeah, 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 he's really good in this. So, so yeah. There's again, there's a lot, lot to enjoy. Um, I feel, I feel also like you know there that it's it's drawn more than maybe more than its fair share of criticism by virtue of its of Hollywood's whitewashing, uh, having cast Scarlett Johansson, one of the biggest action stars in the world right now, and quite a capable person of of 
portraying aliens and robots and anyway, but they've chosen yeah, her. She's on a certain kind of streak that yeah. might maybe after this one it might be good to get off it. Well, I've, I've actually seen a trailer where she does a comedy with a with a bunch of women. Oh, I saw that. Yes. Rough Night, which sounds like a very different kind of thing than this. Uh, but uh, but no, I mean I understand absolutely why people would say, oh, you know, Hollywood whitewashing a, a Japanese fantasy, turning it into uh, you know casting. Uh, Caucasian, uh, you know, white actors for for this. And I, I totally get that because there's a history of it and it's not good. Um, at the same time, this particular example, um, I think she looks just like the character from the uh, from the anime. I mean, her her uh, visually, her aesthetic yes, is, for sure. is they've matched her. She looks just like she stepped out of the anime. Um, you know, and I, I wonder about things like this kind of stuff doesn't come up when they when Hollywood makes a Godzilla movie. Like no. they they cast it full of white actors. They take this very Japanese monster, this very Japanese material, this fantasy material, and transport it right into into the United States. And uh, and it's, it doesn't quite get the same kind of criticism. So so I just find I mean I for me I guess I just expect Hollywood to swallow and regurgitate, and that's just how <laughs> that that's how they do. You know. Well, well, and. The anime makes it quite clear that it's a multicultural city. That, Absolutely. That, that um, you know that that we're we're you know we're seeing people coming from other countries that want to come here and and um, and then get attacked by killer robots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and the and, cast and, and the cast is very international. As yeah. Well. And you know Takeshi Kitano is 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 a real uh, treat as her as her boss. Who, yeah. You know is also kind of a tough guy when when. It's required. Uh, the scene where his car gets attacked is, is, is one of the, my favorite scenes in the film. Yes. Um, you know, and he just uh, pulls out all the stops. Uh, it's, you know, I kind of wish more of his film. I, I'm having a hard time tra- trapping or tracking down some of his films okay. these days. Actually, I actually wanted to see some things like uh, Fireworks and some other films that Sonatine. I had a desire to revisit those, and I can't find them anywhere. It's, yeah. it's the the frustrating non-physical age uh non-physical media age is making it kind of difficult to to kind of revisit some of the stuff that he's been in so at least it's nice to see him in a in a, a film on the big screen even even though it's just a supporting role uh yeah absolutely and uh uh you know it is uh it's it's the and again i would say that the dystopia i mean it's very indebted to these films i mentioned and, and also to blade runner which is the granddaddy of the oh, yeah. dystopia film but uh but yeah it's the it's again I, I come back to sort of that visual sort of production design that that i think is i don't think it's scary i don't think these are horror movies i don't think they're cautionary tales i think they're they're strangely welcoming <laughs> well uh. <laughs> I Maybe that's know. just me. Every, every time I, I, I want to go move to the country every time I watch one of these and <laughs> live in a yurt. But, um, you know, cer- certainly, uh, you know, someone who, if, uh, you know, the, the original creator read enough Philip K. Dick and William Gibson to kind of come up with this vision. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure I'm sure things like cybernetic enhancements are just around the corner. I'd, yeah, I suspect they are. I'm just not so sure how keen I am to to get any of that stuff myself. <laughs> So for this segment, let's uh, let's go back to the kind of the granddaddy of modern dystopian films. We mentioned Metropolis, of course, which is, goes back to the 1920s, and and um, there's some other precedents. There was a, a Russian film called Alita, Queen of Mars, about the need to get off this planet and go go to another. And and uh, you know, Metropolis influenced a few films a little further down the line, like the I mentioned. Uh, that H.G. Wells uh, movie, Things to Come, and and uh, there's even like a 
comedy musical called Just Imagine where a Swedish comedian named El Brendel winds up getting frozen and waking up, very Futurama, wakes up in like a future version of, of Earth that I think is probably set in the 1980s, you know, where of course everyone has the jetpacks and all that kind of thing. Uh, but um, but but I, I kind of feel like you can trace the, the kind of the modern view of of uh, of where society may be heading as, as technology and, and um, you know, medical technology and, and uh, corporate mind think and all of these things kind of converge. And that is uh, George Lucas's THX 1138, which uh, is based on a short film that he made uh, as a student in film school. And then he expanded that into a feature, uh, his first feature film with the help of Francis Ford Coppola in, I think, 1970 is when it came out. And, uh, you know, it's I think before Star Wars, I don't think that many people saw this film. It did get a, a theatrical release through Warner Brothers and uh, had mixed reviews at the time. And um, but, uh, you know, at, with uh, with American Graffiti and then, of course, Star Wars blowing everything wide open, there was a lot more attention focused on the film. And of course, uh, Lucas, as is his want, tinkered with it a few times over the years, including the current version, which is called the George Lucas Director's Cut. Um, of THX 1138, which is currently the only version you can see of it um, with some uh, computer enhancements. That's so frustrating. I mean, I'm frustrated enough that it's very hard to find a an unenhanced Star Wars out there. Yeah. I mean, that's really... I have seen them. I mean, they are they do exist, but uh, they're not easy to find. And uh, yeah, and it's like, I'm okay if you're going to doctor it up. If you're going to change things just like I'm okay with Michael Mann if he wants to change all his movies, which he does. But just leave <laughs> us leave us the original version that we can find somewhere if we prefer to see that. Like, I don't see why why this, um, this rewriting of history uh, needs to be an erasure of the original as in terms of, of being a film, appreciating the, the original film. Well, of course, and as we've seen, like the, the doctored version of Star Wars now looks more dated because of... That kind of clunky looking CGI, totally. and, you yeah. know, the, the and these kind of clean looking digital mats inserted where things looked a little grittier, and it 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 just it's it's out of you can spot it a mile away, and it doesn't enhance the film in any way, shape, or form. Um, just makes things busier and you know uh, more cluttered and uh, visually, and and you know takes some of the take some of the soul out of it. But um, yeah, if you want to see something like the original version of this film. You'd have to go find the laser disc <laughs> or the VHS or the VHS copy, which of course yeah. will be cropped. Uh, so you're getting yeah. maybe the uncluttered version, but um, you're only getting like a, a half of the picture mm-hmm. with, with that version. But but um, it's you know, and some of the inha- I mean, they they're not all as heinous, but they they do stick out like a sore thumb. You can instantly spot when a scene has been enhanced with computer graphics. It's not seamless. Um, but really, the, the, I guess the, the but but the you know which is funny because the the film is about how you know this future is going to affect us, and then the future affects the film itself, which I find is a weird, it's a, it's interesting irony, snake that, yeah. eating its tail kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, it's um, um, you know, and it's for anyone who who hasn't seen it, it's it's a. Uh, it's in this the society sort of a windowless internal society, perhaps underground. In fact, if eventually we find out it is subterranean. Uh, lots of ho- concrete hallways and white rooms. And basically, in this world, everyone is shaved their head and wearing white clothes. Everyone is medicated. The state is issuing edicts on drug taking, insisting on it. It's an entirely drug society. Sex is illegal, and drugs inhibit 
sexual behavior. The character that Robert Duvall plays, the titular character, THX1138, is a worker um, who works on, I think he works on robots or yeah, some he, mechanical he's, you know, he's, factory. He's basically putting the nuclear um, or plutonium rods inside the uh, cyborg policemen that kind of roam the the corridors and and roadways of of this uh future society and and of course he's they he's takes these kind of state prescribed medications to steady his nerves and and you know i, I guess it's some sort of like riddle and so he can focus yeah. on the task at hand and it's very dangerous we see a scene where there's an explosion yeah in another plant and then someone's you know you hear the announcement oh we have only lost 195 to their 200 yeah. and so and so deaths so we're doing great well and then, yeah and then his roommate starts messing with his medication and right and he doesn't you know he also he doesn't feel well and he doesn't understand why because she's been switching out his, his medicine and and trying to get him to like snap out of it basically giving mm-hmm. him placebo I guess, or you know, just substituting, you know, sugar pill or whatever she's doing. It's it's not entirely clear. I think I think she wants to kind of snap him out of it and maybe run away to yeah, wherever. She, she seems equally as unhappy as he is, and he is very unhappy. Yeah. He, he goes to talk to the sort of father confessor uh, deity figure in these little uh, sort of phone booth uh, confessing confession stalls, and he gets a recording and this big image of of this. Uh, this in this therapy speak, none of which helps him. No. Uh, and he, he he does wind up without being too spoilery about it. He does wind up incarcerated in a in a featureless white room, uh, which sort of is the sort of centerpiece of the film as he comes to terms with what he needs to do and and these other characters he interacts with. Eventually getting spilled out into uh, sort of a trans it looks like a transit hub there's people everywhere and then it becomes the final third of the film is a is is it becomes a bit of an escape a chase uh, an escape and it's uh, it's actually becomes quite thrilling as it goes along it starts quite slowly but it, it picks up speed and uh, and this vision of the future is uh, you know watching it so many years later, 45 46 years later uh, I was really impressed with how um you know the themes of the film still resonate it's it's very it's very telling that the, especially the the drug stuff the you know the yeah the, i'd sort of forgotten how much of it especially in the first you know quarter or third or whatever is is centered on like medication and you know this this state induced um you know kind of um sleepwalking state that everybody yeah. seems to be in chemical submission yeah which you know which is a rip right out of uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World I guess with the Soma was the drug right that uh, was kind of keeping everybody uh, sheepish and sedate in, in, in that book and here it's a whole cocktail of different things that he has to take and um it's uh, you know certainly pressing of, of where we are today with with that sort of thing and, and certainly uh, some medications helpful and some of it you got to wonder about and, <laughs> yeah but but you know, a lot of uh, besides uh, Huxley, uh, I think Lucas was probably inspired by uh, this kind of the rise of PharmaCorp in the '60s. There's a great if you, if you get a chance, and I think it's on YouTube. Go on, um, go on YouTube and look up uh, the Relaxed Wife. It's a, an info educational film about better living through tranquilizers, basically. Uh-huh. And it's, it's you know it's it's produced you know for a pharmaceutical company talking about how you know pills will make your life so much easier and it's just, it's only a short hop skip and a jump from that which he must have seen at some point uh going into this because it, it feels you know like the modulated tone that we get um feels like it's the same tone that we hear in some of the voiceovers in thx1138 um in fact there's uh at some point that there's a uh, maybe it's the voice of om 
which is the the deity that everyone uh, confesses to. Um, I think Lucas hired a funeral director okay. to do the voiceover. He wanted somebody, you know, to, he just wanted, he brought, the, you know, Walter Murch talks about how he just brought this guy in one day to, to voice these lines and he wanted to, you know, like a funeral, like just read this in the tone of uh, like you're speaking to the bereaved. And that's why you get this kind of warm and fuzzy, but sort of patronizing kind of tone mm-hmm. in these kind of voiceovers. Like the the, the effort that goes into some of the voice work just that you hear in the background of this film. I mean, they really, you know, aside from finding cool locations that look kind of futuristic and, and making the most of kind of practical sites and things, um, you know, the work that went into the soundtrack and the, and the soundscape. And I mean, Walter Murch, of course, went on to work with, you know, on Star Wars and create the sound of the laser blasters and the, 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 the lightsabers and all that kind of thing. But, but, but here they're, you know, creating sounds for another world that doesn't exist and, you know, creating room tone and speeding music up and slowing it down. And there's a, on the, if you get the DVD, there's a, a sort of an in-depth interview where he explains all the different techniques that he used to make this thing, uh, an oral experience as well as a visual one. And, and, and the voice work is, is part of it. In fact, I, we were talking about this before we started rolling tape, but at, if you listen closely um, during the chase sequence, uh, Robert Duvall's character, he's in a, like a kind of a futuristic looking sports car trying to escape from the Robocops. And he's got the headphones on and he can hear the traffic control chatter in the background. And uh, one of the voices, which apparently is from a improv comedy troupe in San Francisco, says, hey, somebody ran over a Wookiee back there. And uh, so, of course, Lucas uh, hung on to that word and used it uh Later in Star Wars, and the rest is history. But <laughs> I guess one of the um, one of the voiceover artists used just threw that word in there as a tribute to a friend of theirs who was named like Robert Wookie or something like that. So gotcha. uh, you know, and that ended the lexicon <laughs> from a weird little happy accident. And and there were other ties to Star Wars uh, in the film as well. If if you if you look, you can see certain vid- the, the the cyborg cops you know are, are aren't too far away from R two D or sorry C three PO. Um, and certainly the, the use of interesting locations uh, got put to the test in Star Wars, where they kind of combine uh, sets and location uh, filming. Because uh, and, and Star Wars is, you know, even though it was like a big blockbuster, it's you know, certainly low budget compared to the films that followed. Yeah, and absolutely. And there had to be a certain amount of craftiness going into that as well. And, uh, you know, just a, a certain... You know the, the the evil this evil empire and its kind of patronizing attitude towards the general populace certainly comes across uh, in in the in the portrayal of the empire as well. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, there. Are, there are definitely you can tell it's the same filmmaker and uh, and yeah, it's fun. I think for for people who are interested in in film and George Lucas, I, I think uh, it's worth going back to have a look at at this. And I, I would actually say that even though I agree with you that the the CGI or the 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 tinkering that he's done with the film, uh, it's it's not it's not awesome. It's it's better than what he did with the special editions of the Star Wars movies. Yeah, and it's it's, mo- it's 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 a little more sensitive, I think. The, yeah, the, the most egregious part is like an extended, completely CGI highway chase scene that really sticks out like a sore thumb right. because it does it, it does have that airy post two thousand and one kind of nineteen seventy sci fi feel, and then all of a sudden there's this like whiz bang computer car chase thing happening um you know whereas before it's like this kind of found location futuristic sci-fi thing i actually actually cronenberg does that in some of his early films too where it's Mm. sort of the not too distant future and they use kind of the 
kind of oppressive concrete architecture around Toronto to, to good effect. And this uses the similar thing around San Francisco. They use some of the, the underground tunnels and, and uh, uncompleted, uh, you know, subway train tunnels and the yes. path system and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, so the CGI kind of diminishes that right. kind of a part of the achievement in a, in a lot of ways, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to give a quick, you mentioned it earlier, but I want to give a quick shout out because it was important, I think, to both of us when we were kids is Logan's Run. Yeah, it uh, ties in really well to THX yeah, 138 Because of sure. that trying to escape the oppressive society, but also physically escape, not just yes. mentally, like trying to get out of the city. And uh, Logan's Run, for anyone who doesn't know the story, it's, a, it's about a society where Everyone who reaches the age of 30 takes part in this ritual called carousel where they sort of embrace the promise of rebirth and they have this this big so, – so no one lives past the age of 30. And there are these uh, series of law enforcers called Sandmen who um, who chase down any runners and the runners are the people who do not want the rebirth, do not want to go to carousel and try to escape the city. And so these Sandmen, these, these guys, they, they shoot them, they go and hunt them down. Uh, everyone has crystals embedded in their hands and when, and they turn red indicating the time of the 30, the thirties is coming. I guess they yes. don't really celebrate birthdays as much as just knowing that this is what's yeah, coming. Exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah. So one of the Sandmen, uh, Logan five decides when his time comes, he, he's not willing to go through uh, carousel either and he tries to run and leave the city and and then yeah and the film becomes this this sort of uh, not really a road movie but just this 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 on this ongoing journey for this character or characters uh he's not always alone to find his way out of the city and of course finds the ruins of a of a of a former civilization which seems very familiar to yes. us um <laughs> and and encounters his first person over the age of 30 at one point so uh, it's it's a uh, i mean it's the the set stuff is very campy and and the the miniaturization stuff is very poor in 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 retrospect i mean it looks pretty cheesy but uh, it's still a, a really fun movie and i like its science fiction concepts and i i i really enjoy what it's basically saying which is you know our our um passion for youth culture is is uh, a dead end yes <laughs> yeah it it's uh, it's certainly not as clever conceptually as THX but it's, it's got a bigger budget I think they shot inside a mall for much their their city is actually like a mall in Texas or something yeah in like Dallas that. or something I think they and, shot yeah and uh, you know stylistically I mean THX 1138 has this great aesthetic of the, the whiteness and the um the weird the feeling of the like going from claustrophobia like weirdly like the everyday life is claustrophobic and then when he's in the prison it's endless white space which is like this complete flip around from what yeah incarceration is is thought of most of the time um so but logan's run doesn't have any high aspirations in that regard but at least yeah the 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 idea of, of you know endless youth culture is death kind of thing I, i'm quite on board with and I, you know it was quite an exciting film as a kid i mean it's it's meant to be for the most part above and beyond everything else it's supposed to be an entertaining kind of thrilling flick and that it is it inspired a tv series i think i think there's like a one series logan's run tv series i'm surprised it hasn't been remade i, I keep hearing talk of yeah i, I heard it, it was it might have been but it never it never got off the uh, drawing board I it think. will <laughs> wait, just wait for it uh you know um and uh, it's, you know, it's maybe a little more cheesetastic. I mean, you've got Farrah Fawcett uh, shows up as uh, she works in like a beauty parlor where you can get laser plastic surgery. And, um, you know, I love the, the 
you know, when they do go on the run, there's a great robot who's trying yes. to turn everybody into into seafood. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot to like in the film, and it's mm-hmm. you know, it's I, I should revisit it to see. If it's, I haven't watched it in about a decade or so. I should revisit and see if uh, it, how well it's aged. But I have watched it as an adult compared to when I was a kid, and I, I still find it highly entertaining. Although it's it's 70s origins are all too vividly apparent. Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So in thinking about dystopia movies, you know, it's it's funny. There's a lot of action movies that are set in dystopic realms and, and but but uh, and, and future, uh, you know, terrible futures, uh, certainly, you know, the Terminators of of the world, uh, that kind of thing. But but uh, the thing I like about dystopia movies is that they spend some time setting up the the environment or the cities or the 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 political situations it, it injects a little more depth into your average science fiction future movie and uh, and I enjoyed that and and uh, I remember when I first saw The Handmaid's Tale which I've been thinking about lately because there's word that a new version of this of the Margaret Atwood book is being created for television uh, starring Elizabeth Moss I've actually seen a trailer for it oh wow it, it's coming soon uh, on an American cable station I think um, and it, it looks I mean it's shot in Toronto again uh, so you see <laughs> some Toronto scenes there sure. uh, but it has very much a similar look to the the film which has kind of been forgotten and I'm not sure why maybe because it was a Canadian German co-production and and therefore for it, it was made outside the auspices of Hollywood, and therefore maybe you know it was kind of an indie. But I remember when it came out, and it was it was a big deal anyway in Canada. It was the Atwood book was adapted by Harold Pinter, and uh, Natasha Richardson plays the lead role. And Natasha Richardson, the daughter of Vanessa Redgrave, who had a great career uh, as an actor, sadly before it was it was cut short by uh, I think a skiing accident. Yeah, a skiing accident. Uh, she she was of course also married to Liam Neeson and. Uh, uh, she was a wonderful uh, actor in her own right, um, and she's. This is a great starring role for her, and uh, yeah, the story is it's this this world uh, and this oppressive patriarchy called the Republic of Gilead, where. Um, Many of the women ha- are, have lost the ability to to bear children, except for this sort of chosen few. And they the the fertile women are are in this sort of like commune where they are basically uh, set up with people in political power and uh, and become their breeders. Uh, and it's uh, I mean it's it's incredibly uh, you know intense, powerful story and a very uh, uh, scary one. This is one where the dystopia really feels like a, a bit of a horror movie. Yeah, it's it's not about action or or creating this, you know, super high tech futuristic world. It's about, you know, where we're going in terms of how the relationship between men and women is going, which, uh, you know, we're still seeing that battle being fought out <laughs> every day. Uh, and it is, is certainly a... a a major issue, uh, especially with the current regime in the United States, as of uh, 
April 2nd, 2017. Yes. <laughs> Depending on when you're listening to this. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, people of the future, please change things for the better. Yes. Um, uh, if only we could send this into the past. Um, and it, yeah, it's definitely, I, I think it's probably ripe for uh, a, a re reappraisal because yes, uh, and, and retreatment just because of those those themes are so prescient and and you know shockingly still need to be driven home to people you know yeah um and it stars uh the original stars robert duvall speaking again, of duvall again mr dystopia yeah um also uh, uh faye dunaway aiden quinn and elizabeth mcgovern for for uh, downton abbey fans uh, want to see one of her earlier earlier films uh i, I read the book and remember I, I haven't seen the movie since it came out but i remember being quite pleased with uh, how it treated the book and how it, you know, had to slim things down, obviously, but, but, um, you know, captured those themes and, and was so well cast. I mean, you know, Robert Duvall can either be the nicest guy in the world or like a terrifying force of nature. And uh, here he's just this, this, this menacing figure throughout the film. Uh, but it's a really tempered performance. And uh, I, I really would like to revisit the original. I guess it's one of those things where it's just a, you know, these international co-productions, the rights to them just seem to evaporate into thin air. And nobody involved seems to be interested in getting it back out there. You know, it's like Candy Mountain is another example. It was right, like, sure. Uh, it was like a, what, a Swiss Canadian, American, you know, like it just, you gets the films made, but but keeping them in the public eye is is it seems to be an afterthought sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I think uh, Handmaid's Tale is worth looking back. I think you can find it on iTunes, but you have to buy it. You can't rent it. And you, you know, you're gonna pay ten bucks for the movie. I mean, maybe that's worthwhile uh, depending on your budget. But but it's a bit of a drag that that you know most movies you can rent for half of that. Uh, yeah. So and I mean, yeah, and I'm not particularly interested in, in owning the digital copy of anything. So no, um, I'm more. Of it's not really owning when your hard drive crashes. That's right. It's, it's, I'm more of a more of a physical media kind of guy, anyway. Um, but yeah, as far as as the uh, the dystopia thing goes, I think Gattaca should be mentioned. This is the film from 1997 and uh, directed by Andrew and directed and written by Andrew Nichol, who has had a pretty interesting career as a filmmaker. Um, and it, it sort of envisions a uh, a future of genetic uh, singularity, uh, wherein there there are people who have the particular the right the right kind of of genetics and are are therefore the the higher class and and those who aspire to that uh it stars uh jude law ethan hawk and uma thurman in the in key roles uh and it's 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 also slightly harrowing i mean i yeah i i almost want to backpedal from my early assertion that these dystopias can be uh, attractive this one is not at all no the the whole idea of just genetic mutation and eugenics which is just a horrific concept, uh, you know, certainly makes for a, a gripping film and, and kind of a terrifying uh, concept for a future society. And Gattaca does it on a bunch of different levels. And, you know, plus it's a gorgeous film to look at. It's it's really well made. But the, the ideas that it's trying to um, warn us about are, are pretty terrifying. Actually, in, in when you mentioned... Um, the Handmaid's Tale and films that don't that aren't about necessarily technology so much or about you know the futuristic cityscapes or what have you and um, and that have a literary background. I immediately thought of Fahrenheit 451. Oh yeah, sure. Which uh, was um, adapted by Francois Truffaut from the Ray Bradbury novel, and it's a film that uh, is pretty readily available. There's yeah. like a cheap universal DVD of it out there, and sure. I think you can see it in other forms and, and places. But um, you know, it was. 
it was kind of not terribly well received at the time, but um, uh, you know, it wasn't regarded as a terribly good Transvaal Truffaut film. And Ray Bradbury was was a bit down on the adaptation. Uh, you know, I read the book, I loved the book, and I thought the film was fine. I remember seeing it. Uh, I saw like a t- after it was on like some afternoon TV matinee show with commercials, and I still enjoyed it even with with that kind of horrendous presentation. And I, having watched it again since. Um, it still holds up really well, and 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 in 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 line with what uh, the Handmaid's Tale says about you know what the patriarchy is attempting to do in terms of women and their control over their own bodies, um, you know Fahrenheit four fifty one kind of points at uh, you know more a more serious version of what idiocracy is right. about. Is about. Um, you know the fact that there there is this ongoing dumbing down of society at large um in this case taking the extreme where books are outlawed completely and everyone just watches giant flat screens on their walls gee that did that come true yeah i think it did yeah um uh you know so it's very pressing in that regard um and uh our main character is a fireman who goes around and he he doesn't put out fires they actually go around burning people's caches of books Mm -hmm. i have a vision of myself being that guy with like a secret room in the basement full of bookshelves and things getting caught out by the firemen and then uh and it just has but it it has this kind of wonderful hopeful conclusion uh when the when our our main fireman uh decides to uh you know picks up a book and decides that he likes what he sees and and uh you know decides to, to fight back kind of thing and we also had a pretty good julie christie performance um in this film as well, and uh, and visually, it's it's you know it's very sixties, but uh, just has this kind of sparse look about it that uh, that I find has aged really well. Okay. So th- this is one I, I remember, and I certainly know the book, but uh, I don't know that I've I may have seen it in passing, like when I was a teenager or parts of it. I sort of have some visual memory of it, but I, I can't remember much. Yeah, I, th- I I think maybe Bradbury was upset because I think. Uh, Truffaut pairs away a lot of the text. It's 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 more visual than dialogue driven, and uh, you know maybe Bradbury didn't like that there was that much less of him in the film. But the concept is still strong, and and it has a great resolution that I don't won't give away here. Very good, but uh, <laughs> but it, it it's it feels very natural the mm. way it kind of progresses and it, it ties in well with these with these other films, and uh, I think it's aged pretty well. Like mind you, I haven't seen it in a few years, but. Uh, you know, I have pretty strong memories of it and, and being quite fond of it. Um, you know, speaking of uh, of of other other dystopias and dystopic films and the burning of things, <laughs> this is a little clumsy segue into a, a film that is now available on Netflix uh, Canada, uh, and that's Equilibrium. And I'm just going to mention a couple of things about it. Uh, it's from 20, 2002. It's very much an action movie and very indebted to The Matrix. Like It came out a few years after The Matrix success, and clearly the, the production design, they wanted that kind of a look. A lot of people in black, long black coats. Um, but basically, it's a uh, it's a future vision starring Christian Bale and Sean Bean, uh, and uh, well, mostly Christian Bale. It's mostly about him, and he is the sort of law enforcer, like the Sandman in in the Logan's Run, and he is. Uh, Don't tell me Sean Bean doesn't make it to the end again. Yeah, <laughs> that's hardly a spoiler here. No, not a, yeah, Sean yeah. Bean on screen. 
soon won't be seen. That's right. There's your meme for um, the day. Yes, and uh, he is, this is a film full of gun foo, and it's, like I said, uh, in costumes and, and action, deeply indebted to the Matrix, but but uh, more so to Brazil and its production design of this sort of future world where strong emotion has been eradicated, uh, and they want to do away with all art. So uh, everyone is is drugged. They take something called prosium, and uh, and uh, but against all odds, and I'm quoting here: against all odds and your own natures, we have you have succeeded in creating a, a just society where no one feels anything. Uh, and uh, and yes, Christian Bale doesn't feel anything, and he you know burns whole caches of art uh, with his flamethrower troops. Uh, but of course, eventually he he. he um, and, and he, chases, he chases down sense offenders, he and his clerics. These are the uh, the law enforcers are called clerics in this film. Uh, it's not – Equilibrium is not a great action movie and it's not even a great sci-fi movie necessarily, but it is entertaining and it definitely fits in into this world of the future where where this this person who has been tasked to enforce the law sees the, the better way and uh, basically foments um, a revolution against it. So there's that. Um, but uh, I really – think it's important that uh, and worth mentioning that the maybe the great dystopic film from the past 10 or 15 years is Children of Men from 2006 Alfonso Cuaron's uh, film it, it, it reminds me a lot of 1970s science fiction pretty much anything starring you know Charlton Heston to some degree but <laughs> but it's a whole lot scarier than the Omega Man it's much more like the Handmaid's Tale in that it, it yes, envisions a future wherein no one new has been born in a long time because uh, no one can, they can't, the, the human race can't propagate anymore. And uh, everyone's sort of walking around in this gray haze. Uh, in, I think it was shot in the UK. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, you know, in the, the society, the fascistic tendencies of government, paranoid, anti-immigration policies, and industry unencumbered by any environmental regulation has basically led us to this and uh uh clive owen plays the man who gets drawn into this um web of freedom fighters and they're they're shown to be pretty much as blind and self-destructive of the government in some ways it's a great work from him also michael kane julianne moore and chuatel ejiofor this is this is really this is the most terrifying uh dystopia i think that there has been in recent years and, and certainly one of the best yeah i remember being completely gripped by this film when i saw it and um i think there is a note of hope in it eventually but it's a bit, a bit of a slog to get there um uh, but uh and you know just just that has to ha- have enough realism to make you buy into the potentiality of it all and uh it's got that as well it's funny i believe did the director go on to make a harry potter film I think, yeah yeah the third Alfonso? harry potter yeah a third harry potter film which uh, is the best of the bunch it is and generally agreed to be the best of the bunch yeah yeah uh quran is 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 a great great film he went on i guess later i think gravity is his too yes yeah yes it is. yeah so so you know he he has uh, a lot of talent and uh it is it yeah but it is uh it's about as grim as it gets but it also has uh uh, the time to do like a, an amazing, there's an amazing action, a car chase sequence in it that's shot where he puts the camera inside the car sort of on, on an, um, on, on, in the, on the ceiling and then turns it around through the car as the okay. car is driving through this, this on a gimbal. This, yeah. On a gimbal. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's just, it's, I've never seen anything quite like it. And, uh, and his, his deft use of CGI in, in a way that doesn't draw attention to itself is also really terrific in this film. And I think it's got one of the more famous sort of single shot 
like our long shot scenes and or you know deceptively long yes I think there's probably a little bit of trickery going on there but uh scenes in recent memory happens there as well so uh all, all used to very good effect yeah he, he it's great that he can handle like kind of these big high concept ideas and still keep them grounded on the the human level and uh you know i'll be curious to see where he goes from there Well, that brings us to the end of our look at uh, current crop and some old favorites in the dystopian realm. Uh, and uh, it doesn't look like there's going to be any end to the films on uh, on this topic or in this setting. It seems to be something on the very forefront of our minds as we get further and further into the future. Um, yes, it's just like in Plan 9, this podcast is about the future because that is where you and I will spend the rest of our lives. Because uh, the great Criswell announces at the, end, at the start of that film. Um, but uh, you know, and and some of them may be hopeful, and some of them maybe not. You know, the the the, the whole idea, the the idiocracy, uh, the Mike Judge film <laughs> seems to be coming truer and truer every day. Unfortunately, um, yeah. You know, I was thinking Fahrenheit four fifty one. It's almost like they predicted how uh, a current American regime is trying to gut the arts and public broadcasting and and uh, and uh, obliterate the media, as it were. So uh, you know. Some of these things were foretold in days of yore, um, and then the films in, in that we love, and books, yes, yes. and in films yeah. that we love, and uh, and there's a few more that we just wanted to name check at least. If we yeah. send you down this path, we might as well uh, bring up a few other uh, lesser known titles. Yeah, yeah, and and I think one that I really I quite enjoyed, though it's not like a classic by any stretch, but it's called Equals from 2016, directed by Drake Drake, Drake Doramus, excuse me, uh, and it's it's very solidly akin to THX one one. And Logan's Run and Gattaca it was shot in Singapore and Japan. It has a great austere visual look and aesthetic that I, I really liked. I did not see it on the big screen because it didn't open here on the big screen, but it it could have it would have been great to have have checked it out in the cinema. Um, it, again, like uh, a little like equilibrium it uh, equals an equilibrium let's make sure we got the titles differentiated there uh, emotions have been bred out of human beings it's a hyper efficient society called the collective and uh, driven by voices from flat screens and uniform order uh, people you know buttoned up to the neck uh, a small minority suffer from switched on syndrome which is a four, four stage onset of terminal uncontrolled feelings uh, and of course this is a very bad thing and when you have the fourth stage defective emotional neuropathy uh, which is uh, leads people to a pain-free death scenario. So, you know, it's not good. Uh, and there are two colleagues working in, a, in an office together played by Nicholas Holt and Kristen Stewart, and they find a find sort of a forbidden romantic connection. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so it goes from there. It is a little bit of a, of a Romeo and Juliet story, which I hope doesn't, doesn't necessarily act as a spoiler for how this thing ends. It's, it, there is some hope here, but there is also a lot of tragedy. Um, but but um, what it it misses on being predictable in some ways, it makes up for that sheer icy cinematic world build building, which is something I do like in these movies. Uh, so that's one I would I would also I would recommend people who are interested in dystopia movies check out Equals from last year. And then uh, you know what I was thinking about like what other movies have been recently dystopias, and I gotta say The Lobster. <laughs> the Lobster was a was a dystopia. It's uh, this world where single people must check into a resort hotel tell and submit to a host of rules uh, in order to try to mate up with someone within a certain amount of days or they get turned into the animal of their choice. <laughs> it's a very weird little movie. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny that um, 
I mean, it's it's kind of a parable. It's a bit of a fantasy, but it is also a little bit futuristic, you know. And and uh, it's it's like this absurd um, extraction of the idea of like the, how many people are like finding partners through online. You know, they don't. It's not everyday interaction that that brings people together. It's like online uh, interaction and dating sites and that sort of thing, and swiping left and swiping right. And uh, this kind of takes that to its ultimate sort of absurd uh, extreme in kind of a low tech sort of way. But uh, but the, the the constraints that it kind of pushes people into, like where all of a sudden you believe the only you know, like in uh, and I'm talking about the movie I'm talking about in life, where all of a sudden you feel like the the only person that's right for you is like on the other side of the planet via, you know, an IMDb message board or something. <laughs> you meet somebody online and become attracted to them and your whole life is thrown into upheaval. And, and um, you know, th- th- this film takes this idea of, sort of this regimenting, regi- regi- uh, I don't know what the word I want is. I, I mentioned uh, last week I was a little punchy. Well, it's the same day and I'm still punchy. But, um, but yeah, taking that idea of, of how people you know, meet and mate for life uh, is changing and, and just takes this satiric look at it that is, is, is pretty eye-opening. Yeah, it? absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's quite funny in a very dark, dry way. But, uh, but yeah, the, um, the lobster totally qualifies for our, you know, our, and, of course, most dystopian science fiction films really are saying something about our lives today. Yes, and, of course. And we are all obsessed with, with pairing up, I guess, in one way or the other. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, it's great that we paired up for this podcast. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't done through any unnatural means yeah, we or genetic we, selection or anything like yeah, we that. We weren't medicated, uh, at least not not uh, severely. No, and sadly not ca- caffeinated, or at least not nearly enough. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening to the show this week. This has been Lens Me Your Ears. And uh, if you like the show, you can always track us down on Facebook, uh, look at our page there and drop us a line, or uh, get us on Twitter, at Lens Me Your Ears, and uh, through email, Lens Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com my name again is Stephen cook and i'm on twitter at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e and i'm also on twitter by the name of my uh, blog at flaw in the iris if you like the show and want to support us with a few dollars you can via patreon just uh, go to patreon and search for lends me your ears uh the show is produced here in the comfortable confines of ckdu 88.1 fm thanks for the use of the facilities as always and uh, the show airs every other tuesday on the station and thanks to the folks at the village soundcast network for putting it all together Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.